listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Father, thank you for your kindness to us as a church. You have been good to us. I pray now as we think through this text and this, this really just these very short words from Jesus that are packed full of truth, I pray that you'd give us uh, just the strength to peel back this, this beautiful gem and this beautiful truth and that we, would, that we would see how it settles on our lives and that it would cause Christians in this room to be better citizens of this nation but ultimately better citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet Christians. I pray that today you would show them the beauty of life in your kingdom and that they must turn away from trusting in themselves, turn away from sin, and to trust in Jesus who alone can redeem and reconcile and renew. I pray, Lord, that you do these things for your glory for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before I read, one little recommended resource. It's a thick one. We have a few of these for sale in the resource room. It's a book by a scholar. His name is Wayne Grudem, very gifted teacher, and he has written a book called Politics According to the Bible, a comprehensive resource for understanding modern political issues in light of Scripture. This is really, really good. It's organized very well. Don't think you've got to read the whole thing. But it's got a really good table of contents where if you're thinking about where Christians should be thinking on particular issues, you can go straight to it. And we're selling these in the resource room for what we bought them for just at cost, $30. That's how much the book cost. We're selling it back to whoever wants it for $30. I know that's a lot, but uh, maybe you can make a few down payments on this. This is an excellent book. Um, I'd really encourage you to get it. It's a very good resource. Is anybody, is anybody interested in this book? Aurora, your hand was up first, and you get a free copy of Politics According to... So just scratch off that little price tag there because you had the boldness to raise your hand. All right, well, let's read Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. This is the chapter of confrontation. Remember, last week we talked about Jesus being confronted at the end of Mark 11 and then into Mark 12 about his authority to clear the temple, and now he's being confronted again about about this question of authority. So in Mark 12, verse 13, Mark writes this, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion." For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, here's my plan to unpack this text. We're just going to look very briefly. It's, I think, very pretty simple what's going on here. So we're going to just unpack the text. Then we're going to look at four truths that I think are embedded in this text and specifically in what Jesus says. Then we're going to look at seven principles for how a Christian should live in this world. And then we'll receive communion together. So let's first look at the text. The situation here is that once again we see these leaders. Last chapter they were trying to corner him uh, about his authority. And, and then he used the, the story of or the, the uh, comparison of John the Baptist's authority to sort of back them against the wall. And again they're... They're trying to trick Jesus. And what we have here is really two opposing factions teaming up. Don't just, don't just blow past that. There's something really important there in verse 13. It says that the Pharisees and some of the Herodians came to trap him. Now, 
This is interesting through the Gospels that opposition to Jesus brings together strange bedfellows. The Pharisees were religious conservatives and they seethed at the oppression of Rome and the fact that the Jews were a captive nation at this time. They were, they were maybe not quite as zealous as the zealots, but they were certainly religious conservatives and they hated the fact that they were under the, the thumb of this foreign power, Rome, who had no right over God's people. But then with the Pharisees were these Herodians, which were likely Jews, maybe some others, but some of God's people that were sympathetic to the rule of Herod, who was the governor appointed by the emperor of Rome to be the sort of regional governor of, of Israel. And so... The Herodians were sort of the liberals that were sort of sympathetic to the, 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 the powers that be of the Roman Empire. The, the bottom line is it would be like the Tea Party and the ACLU joining forces in a rally against Jesus. Just to give us kind of a mental modern day picture. Opposition to Jesus brings together strange bedfellows, doesn't it? And so what they're trying to do is they are trying to... Uh, trip Jesus up again. So they're asking him, should we pay this tax, this denarius? It's like a coin. It's basically the equivalent of a one day's wage for somebody in the Roman Empire. And it was a, a poll tax that they would have to pay annually. And this tax had to be paid by this Roman coin. And on this coin was an image of the uh, emperor or the emperor's son and an inscription that that really talked that spoke to the fact that this roman emperor was godlike so so not only were these jews being forced to 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 have this coin and to to trade in this currency that bore the mark of this of this emperor who had his thumb on them but even worse, the inscription on the coin was, was really breaking their first commandment. He was calling himself a god. And so, uh, of course, that would have driven the, the conservative, religious, orthodox Jew crazy. And they come and ask Jesus, what should we do? Should we pay this tax? So if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax, he's going to upset the religious conservatives because they may be thinking, well, he's bowing down to the the Roman government. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, then he is going to run the risk of getting himself in trouble with Rome and being a sort of dissident that's causing trouble. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. If he says, yes, he's going to upset the people, the Jewish people who hated Roman rule. If he says, no, he's going to upset Rome. And Jesus gives a, a sort of qualified Yes, and in it is so much truth. What does he say? Again, in verse 17, it says two things. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. God's. And so, from this, I think we have four truths that we're going to unpack now. Jesus gives two short, concise statements to answer their question. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God, God's. And so he's saying, yeah, pay this tax with this coin, but with qualifications. So four truths. One is that Jesus is clearly endorsing here and saying that God has given a limited authority to government. God has given a limited authority to government. And we see this not just here in Jesus' statement, in a sense saying, yes, give this tax to Caesar, with this coin that he provides. But we also see this in, in Paul in the New Testament. So Romans chapter 13 is this very important passage about how a Christian should, should view civil authority, even unbelieving pagan civil authority that is not Christian in its, its belief. So listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And this is Paul writing to Christians a few decades later, in the Roman Empire. And again, at this point, clearly the Roman Empire is not Christian. In fact, they are persecuting Christians. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. He, meaning the, the, the government, the authority of the government. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So a couple things that we need to notice about what Paul says there, which he's really just building out Jesus' instructions to, that we read in verse 17. Several things to notice is that all authority, whether godly authority or ungodly authority, is instituted by God. Even unbelieving pagan government. And notice that God, in His sovereign providence over all nations and all rulers and all leaders, carries out, in fact, uses unbelieving governments and leaders that don't even acknowledge Him to carry out His purposes for the good, for the common grace of society, even though that authority doesn't acknowledge Him. So it reminds me of that, that proverb, 21 verse 1, I think it says that the king's hand is like a watercourse or a stream in the hand, the king's heart is like a watercourse or a stream in the hand of the Lord, and He directs it wherever He pleases, even pagan, unbelieving kings. And so, God has given a limited authority to government. Leads us to point number two, or truth number two, is that Christians should submit to the righteous authority of their government, even their unbelieving pagan government. So this is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And again, clearly the context here is it's a group of Christians who are living under the thumb of a hostile Roman Empire that is certainly not believing and trusting in Christ. And Peter tells them to honor the emperor. Christians should submit to the righteous authority of their government, and they should also pray for their government. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, the young pastor, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul is calling Timothy to lead his people that he's pastoring in Ephesus to pray for the pagan, unbelieving emperors of the Roman Empire. So Christians should submit, should submit to the righteous authority of their government. Which then brings us to point number three, or truth number three. However... Christians should disobey the government when obedience to that government means disobedience to God. So, when is it right to disobey the civil authorities or the government? When 
is it right to disobey our government? And we have uh, many examples in the scriptures, but let me just, for the sake of time, give you three. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, you can read those this afternoon. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the religious leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, who had not just religious authority, but certainly a limited political authority given to them by Rome, told Peter and John that they could no longer, in Acts chapter 4, teach in that name, meaning in Jesus' name. And Peter and John say, but we, we cannot help but testify of the things that we have seen, and we cannot obey man over God. And so clearly, Peter and John set this example for the church that when the governing authority says that we cannot preach Jesus and proclaim the good news and worship Jesus freely, then we are to disobey our government. We see this in the Old Testament too. Very, very two prominent examples in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. Some of you I'm sure are familiar with this story. Daniel chapter 3, these three young Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had been taken captive along with the whole nation of Israel by a Babylonian power and a Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says to these three young Hebrew boys that you need to bow down and worship this statue. And they say, no, we're not going to do it. And as punishment to that, then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace. And, and of course, that beautiful story where God delivers these three boys. In fact, I think this is a pointing forward to Jesus. We see a, a fourth man in the fire there. God himself, I think, protecting, or an angel, God coming and protecting their righteous disobedience of the government. And then a couple chapters later, we see Daniel, for whom the book is named, the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, who refuses to stop his regular practice of prayer, as was issued this edict by the king, and he refuses to not pray to God, and as a result, he's thrown into the lion's den. But again, God helps him and shuts the mouth of the lion. And so we see there where the where the worship of God is, is, um, is prohibited by the government, and Daniel and these, these Hebrew young boys righteously disobey the government. And we see it in Exodus, all the way back in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus chapter 1, where Pharaoh commands these Hebrew midwives to slaughter all the male Hebrew children, and they righteously disobey this clear violation of God's law, taking the life of these babies. So Christians should disobey the government when obedience means disobeying God. And then truth number four, God has ultimate and supreme authority over all nations, governments, and individuals. And so Jesus is, he's not, he's not saying that kind of over here is Caesar's realm, so pay this tax, and then over here is sort of the religious realm, so honor God and give to God what is God's. He's not, he's not dividing culture into secular and spiritual. He's saying that over it all, God has ultimate and supreme authority over all nations, all leaders, all pharaohs, all kings, all presidents, all governments, and over all individuals. See, see notice there in verse 17, actually verse 16, Jesus brings up this really important point. He says that they brought this coin, and Jesus looked at the coin, and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And so he says, okay, well then pay this tax to Caesar. That's part of his limited sphere given to him by God. But, but, but surely this should point us to, to a much grander inscription that is written on every human being in Genesis chapter 1, whose image is on mankind. The Bible says that God created us in his own image. So yeah, there's these little coins where this ruler is, is, is saying that he's in charge of society. Yeah, whatever. God even gives him that authority. But over every human being, there's this, there's this likeness. There's this image. Even unbelievers. Friends, that's why all human life is valuable. That's why even people who are not believers and trusting in Jesus have value. Because even if they are rejecting God, they are still bearing God's image. It doesn't mean that they, that if they die outside of Christ, that because they bear God's image in some way, that they will be with Him forever. 
to die without Christ. It's to die separated from Him from eternity. But it does mean that we as Christians should respect all humankind because we all bear His likeness. And Jesus is saying that, yeah, yeah, there's Caesar's likeness on a coin, but my likeness, my image is on you. Therefore, I own you. I have bought you with a price. Abraham Kuyper, who along with the Abraham in the Bible is the namesake of my fourth child, who, by the way, I wanted to name Salvatore, which is a great Italian name, but my wife overruled me, and so he came up with a spiritual name. But Abraham Kuyper... Wouldn't that be cool? What's your name, kid? Salvatore Evangelista. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Sorry. Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a Dutch theologian and the prime minister of the Netherlands at the turn of the last century, around the late 1800s, early 1900s. So he's a politician and a theologian. He offered this beautiful quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So friends, let's let's not compartmentalize life here. Let's not say, oh, well, this is the government's, and this is secular, and this is spiritual. Because if you get into that trap, you'll start to compartmentalize your own life. And say, well, Sundays is for God, but the rest, of the, the rest of the week I can kind of do what I want. Friends, that's not what it means to bear the image of God. He has authority over every aspect of our lives, over our thoughts, over our leisure, over our sexuality, over our finances, over our work, over our family, over everything. But friends, when you, when you hear that Jesus, when you hear those words that Jesus has total and supreme and ultimate authority over you, remember that it is for your good and for your joy. So he's not a harsh taskmaster leading you into sort of a a gritty obedience because you need to be good little boy or good little girls. He's leading us with his supreme and utter total authority for our ultimate good and joy. So we, before we move on to some principles as to how we should live, let's, let's look at an illustration. I don't draw pictures very off, for you very often. Actually, I didn't draw this picture either, um, but this, I think, is a helpful sort of picture for you to understand. There's, there's two spheres there. That brown sphere there in the, in the, the smaller circle is this given authority. It's government. Whether or not this government is honoring Christ or not, government, all governments, to some degree, have a limited authority given by God. But that authority, that sphere of authority of government exists within a greater sphere of God's ultimate and total authority. It's not separate. They're not separate spheres. That, that limited authority of the government, even if it's not acknowledging the the lordship of Jesus and the supreme authority of God still exists within and under the ultimate and total authority of God. And so, so there's some areas where it's, it's clear that the government should exercise its authority. It should, it should care for us. It should cause, uh, get policemen and a military to give a sort of civil order I think we would all agree that's clearly in where the government should exercise their authority and God gives them an authority to do that. In fact, that's the thrust of Romans 13, that God gives this government some authority to to really punish evildoers. But here's where where it it, it gets difficult. What what happens when the government steps outside of its sphere of authority? How do we as Christians interact with that? When the government clearly steps outside of its spheres of authority and commands us to break God's law, we disobey. So there's, I think, some very clear ones that Christians should understand. And we don't want to just take these for granted because I think in an ever-increasing cult, a culture that is ever-increasingly hostile to God, I think it's important for us to just mention these occasionally, if not often. One would be the issue of abortion. That if the government, as, say, for example, in China were to force abortions, maybe for some reason of population control or whatever reason, 
Clearly, friends, Christians should vehemently disobey. Or, if you are a Christian healthcare worker or a physician and the government says that you must perform or be involved in abortions, friends, you should disobey. And you should disobey not caring whether or not that causes you to lose your job. Or, and this is happening right now in our nation, if the government says that a Christian business or an institution must provide health insurance that includes mandatory funding for abortions, then that company, the leadership of that company, should disobey. And friends, that's happening with Hobby Lobby right now, which is a Christian-owned business. And this new health care law mandate that has been passed in the past few years, which has been in the news, uh, is mandating that these large employers give insurance coverage to, uh, for abortions. It's happening in, to Hobby Lobby. It's also happening to, I believe, Wheaton University, one of the hallmark uh, Christian universities. And both of these organizations, Hobby Lobby and Wheaton, are fighting this in the courts. And so we as Christians clearly should disobey and reject the authority of the government when it causes us to do something, or it's calling us to do something like that. Another instance would be this huge hot topic of homosexuality. And that churches, if the government said that churches must support gay marriage, or that pastors must perform same-sex marriages, then friends, we must disobey, even if that means that they strip us of any tax benefit that they have, they kick us out of uh, this building, or if they prohibit us from ever publicly gathering, then friends, we go underground and we join the majority of other Christians around this world who live in a hostile nation. We must disobey. And, and, And as I say those two things, especially those two sort of hot topic issues, let me mention that, friends, um, we're not just trying to take a political stand here. Listen, if you have participated in an abortion in your past, if you are a man or a woman, and you've participated in an abortion, know that there is grace for you in Jesus. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God and And sin separates us from God. And certainly some sin has more severe earthly consequences. But friends, we are not, do not interpret this as a sort of, we're taking this moral stand and ah, we don't have, no friends. I pray that this this room and this church would be filled with broken people, hurting people, women across. I, I pray that this place would be, the word would be out on the street, that this is a place where somebody that might be dealing with that pain of having an abortion in their past can come and be loved and nurtured in gospel grace. Likewise, the same issue, the same sense with with people struggling with same-sex attraction. Friends, we are not, listen, sin is sin, and certainly some sin has different cultural consequences. But friends, there are people in this room with a crowd this size. People I know that in this room are are wrestling with same-sex attraction, and they are taking God's side against their sin. Right? And they're Christians. They're born-again believers who are struggling with sin just like you and I who might not be dealing with that particular sin are still struggling with our own sins. To be a Christian is not to be sinless. It's to take God's side against your dreaded sin rather than sin's side against a dreaded God. And so, friends, if you are wrestling with same-sex attraction, there is gospel grace here. And in fact, I think the Lord has led us to In a couple weeks, we're going to take a pause out of the Gospel of Mark because this is such a hot issue and such a difficult topic culturally right now. We're going to take a break out of the Gospel of Mark in a few weeks. And we're going to just look at what the Bible says about human sexuality, in particular homosexuality, and how we as Christians should view that and create a culture of restoration and gospel truth to a culture that is so broken in that area. But those are clear issues where clearly we should disobey. There are issues that are more complex and gray. So should we go to war with this particular nation for this particular reason? Those are hard things. Sometimes those lines are not always clear. How should we as a nation care for the needy and the poor? How, what balance should that be? How should we as a nation... How should we as a nation... Um, engage the issue of health care 
And friends, these not clear issues is an area where we as Christians need to have great grace for each other. And this is the area where we as Christians need to identify ourselves with Christ more than with a political party or ideology. And so if you are part of the Fox News crowd and you're upset about one of these gray areas and how somebody that might be a little more liberal, don't equate faithfulness to Christ with a stance on a gray area politically, right? And, and if you're on the other side, don't equate compassion with your particular stance on a gray area and look and say, oh, those moralists, they're just cranky Christians. If only we could all just kind of be like how I see it. In these areas that are not clear, we should have great grace for one another. But the challenge is, friends, especially in our context in America, is that these issues do not exist in a vacuum. And if you are a young uh, Christian who's not very aware politically, know that no issue sort of stands on its own. And so if you take a stand in one gray area, oftentimes attached to that as a whole ideology. And so we need to be as wise, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. So now let's, let's bring this, let's land this plane and look for, and look at seven principles for how a Christian should live in this world. And usually I spend time in the Word and am informed by many different teachers and authors and writers, um, both living and dead, and kind of wrestle with it and come up with what I think God is saying to this. In this instance, these seven points, I am ripping off almost verbatim from Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and uh, he uh, wrote on this particular issue and how Christians should engage culture and politics, and so these seven principles are almost verbatim from what he has written on this issue, and so this is, these are not my thoughts. I will, I will, I'm, I'm, because I thought it was so helpful, I'm just going, I've, I've reworded it a little bit, but Mark Dever and my thoughts about how Christians should live in this world. One, friends, is that we should remember that the mission of the church is to work for supernatural change. The mission of the church is to work for supernatural change. What do I mean by that? Friends, you cannot legislate resurrection gospel truth. The recent shift in our cultural landscape where sins like abortion and homosexuality or whatever seem to be much more culturally acceptable than they were even five or ten years ago, listen to me, has made the role and the mission of the church, zero, zero percent more difficult. Friends, we have always been preaching to a graveyard, and it is up to God to give life. The world is not neutral, and, 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 and bad public policy is starting to win out. The world is dead in its sin. It's been dead in its sin from the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, and salvation and change has always been a supernatural work of God. Friends, we are just like Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, where God calls his prophet to look over a valley of dry bones and preach to the graveyard. Two. Understand that persecution is actually normal. Jesus promised it. He says in John 16, verse 33, In this world you will have tribulation. Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It has been the experience of many, if not the majority of Christians throughout the centuries, to be persecuted, some with their lives, very severely for being a Christian. When we act shocked at persecution or difficulty or opposition to the Christian message or the ethics that flow out of it, we demonstrate that we haven't fully grasped what it means to be a Christian and a follower of this Jesus who was executed as a criminal of the state. Friends, persecution is the normal experience for the vast majority of Christians alive today. Number three, beware of the false 
ideal of utopianism. If you're not familiar with that word utopia, it's this idea of this sort of perfect society. And friends, the, the gospel, the Bible, holds out no hope for that in this age. It holds out great, it's certain of that in the age to come. But beware of the false ideal that we can sort of create a, a, a sort of utopia society here before Jesus comes again and sets all things straight. We should not unwittingly communicate that this world and being alive in America is the best that it gets. The good old days weren't really good. It's been going downhill since Genesis 3. And there's been this dual trajectory since, since God broke into this world with his prophets and his law and ultimately with his son Jesus. There's been this dual trajectory where the world is getting worse and the kingdom of God is growing and growing and growing. And so when we act like we can create uh, sort of heaven here on earth in completion before Jesus comes, and we, when we lament the fact that it doesn't seem that it's trending that way, we, we, we belie our lack of understanding of the redemptive plan of God through the ages. Friends, we are not longing for a America of the good old days. We are longing for the city that is to come. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek that city that is to come. And when we unwittingly communicate and lament the fact that, that life as we know it, or culture, or America as we know it, is wasting away, which we'll talk about in just a second, is certainly something that we should be distressed about. But when that eclipses our view of the certain future of the reign of God, friends, we unwittingly teach the false gospel of men like Joel Osteen who say that you can have your best life now, which is a dangerous false lie. This world is broken and slipping deeper into brokenness. And there's a a heavenly city which awaits every person, whether they are sawn in half, as it says in Hebrews 11, or whether they are skinned by the Roman emperor, or whether they are beheaded for preaching the gospel in Iran, or whether they are losing political wars in America. There is a city to come where Christ's victory is certain. And so we should be aware of lamenting the good old days and beware of the false ideal of utopianism. However, it brings us to principle number four. We should be good and fierce. In fact, I wish I had put that in there. Fierce. Number four. We should be good and fierce stewards of our freedoms and our democratic process. I hope that you have not interpreted that what I'm saying up to this point about rejecting this false ideal of utopianism as saying that we should not care or be very involved, or very distressed about the state of our culture. We should be. We should be. Some Christians should be and are called to be very active politically. But all Christians should be aware politically and should be informed. And Christians, especially you young folks that, that grew up on MTV and Xbox, listen to me now. On the first Tuesday in November... Get out of your pajamas, off of your brother's couch, and vote. Do not interpret what I'm saying is that we should not be distressed or involved or fight in the process that God has given us in America for political gain, for the sake of the freedom of the gospel. Christians should use the means given to us to work for the good of our culture and country. You see, it's not right of us to say, oh, well, Christians in another part of the world are being persecuted, so let's just slide down this slope of, of just, yeah, let me just, let me just let the government just punch us in the face. Because Christians in the other parts of the world would look to us and say, are you crazy? It's easy for you to say, oh, per to make a sort of ideal out of persecution. They would say, fight for the right to preach the gospel and to make your nation 
look to God, fight for that. They would think we're crazy if we just sort of said, oh, well, everybody else is suffering persecution. So we should be good stewards of the freedoms that we have. That's what a democracy is. We're all in this together. And theoretically, we all share a part in the authority or in the tyranny of our government. Listen to these words from the prophet, from God to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29 of Jeremiah. And he writes to his people who are in captivity, in Babylonian captivity. They are under the thumb of an oppressive, violent, unbelieving government. And he says in Jeremiah 29 verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So, so do this in a place where you, it's not your true home. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But listen to verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So friends, America is not our home. We are exiles here. We are sojourners here. But God in his providence has caused us to be born into this foreign land and we are citizens and we should seek the welfare of our country, which means that we should fight politically for righteousness in our culture, which means that Christians should care and be deeply distressed and should lobby and should vote. In fact, vote twice. Do, just try it. They let you do it in some other cities. Chicago, you can vote as many times. Sorry, David Baum, I know you're a Chicago native. But I mean, try. Just go vote. Right around the block and vote. See if they'll let Vote. Vote early. Vote often. <laughs> And be good stewards of our democratic process. Be good stewards of the freedom that God has given us. And let your heart break. (laughs) Let your heart break that we have a president who will stand up in front of Planned Parenthood of America and will encourage them for their good work as the trial in Philadelphia is going on where there is this murderous serial killer of an abortionist doctor slaughtering babies as they're born alive. Let your heart break over that, friends. Don't let your heart be dulled by just recreation and leisure or our little pocket of Christianity. Let your heart break. Let your heart break that we have a president who would applaud that. And some of you may be called to use every political means to oppose that ideology. Let your heart break. And so when we pray for our king and our president, we don't pray some benign prayer. I pray God save him and change his heart or move him out of office. But having said that, we do it in a respectful way so as not to cloud the witness of the gospel. Because we need to remember that God is in ultimate control. Which brings us to number five, six, and seven. Let's speed up. Number five, trust the Lord, not human circumstances. Friends, there has never been a situation in the affairs of men and nations that is outside of God's control. The Trinity was not sitting up in heaven wondering whether or not the Supreme Court was going to Be five to four this way or that way. In the history of God's dealing with his people, there have been many situations that have seemed impossible or too far gone from earthly vantage points and certainly worse than what we face today. We should trust the Lord, not human circumstances. 
Number six, remember, and friends, this is so important. Remember that everything we have is God's grace. Understanding the gospel means that we understand that we were, before Christ rescued us and made us alive, we were by nature children of wrath. We deserve nothing short of God's justice and punishment. But if you are a Christian, you have been rescued and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, friends, what can man do to us? Everything we have is God's grace. Number seven, finally, rest in the certainty of Christ's victory. As we labor for righteousness in our nation, as we have our feet on the ground and do not fall into the trap of the false ideal of American utopianism, We rest in the certainty of Christ's victory. Friends, the Bible is full of pointing towards that ultimate reality when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I end with this. Friends, the gospel is much more than individual news about how we can be saved. It's certainly that and nothing less than that. But it's more than just how you can get fire insurance and secure your eternal salvation. Jesus saves his people and he places them into a new community. And that new community is not a Christian America, but it is the eternal people of God. It's the church. And he is making these people distinct so that they commend his beauty and his kingdom. And so our life here on earth as citizens in this foreign land, America, which is not our true home, our life here on earth and our work in this culture should be like, it should be like dropping breadcrumbs along to the the pathway to the ultimate satisfying feast. So think of that. We are like, we are like troubadours. We're like announcers of the king and we're saying to an onlooking world as we live as, as alien citizens of this, of this present kingdom of America or the world that we live in, we are like troubadours of the king and we're dropping bread by the way we live in our culture. We're dropping bread saying, come on, come on, follow me, man, follow me. And in as much as we can commend the lordship and the beauty of life in Jesus' kingdom by the way we live here, and affect policy here, we're like dropping breadcrumbs, knowing that the pathway is not what we were called to live in forever and ever, but we're going up the mountain to the feast that ultimately satisfies, which is the place where Jesus forgives, heals, renews, restores, and reigns in all righteousness forever and ever and ever. And, And so some of us in this room need to care more and need to be part of dropping the bread comes like come on let's go let's let's go and we need to fight for our ability to do that so that we can commend by the way we live as citizens to that to that great country that is to come and some of us need to realize that life here in America is just it's just a drop on the breadcrumb along the way to what truly matters which is life in his kingdom Paul writes these words in Philippians 3, 20, 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So we should pray for our president. We should fight His wicked legislation. We should We should be lined up at the adoption agencies and the foster care agencies and we should take in those people that are broken and the sinners that have have been influenced by our, our broken society. We should be people that are fighting for righteousness in our nation but at the same time are picking up the broken pieces of all sorts of people who have been wounded by this culture that we live in. And we should be dropping breadcrumbs along the way saying, no, no, there's something greater. There's this kingdom to come because there's this day coming when Jesus will finally and fully cause everything to be right and subject to his reign and rule. 
And there's that day when Jesus' inscription on all and his likeness on all his people will be clear and true and eternal. Friends, let's, let's be people that by the way we live as Americans, commend and display the city that is to come. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your table, I know the hour is late, but help us focus in on the fact that we are participating now in the body of Christ. That as we take this bread and as we take this juice, it represents that we are trusting in you, that we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Lord, I thank you for America and I thank you for your providence that caused most of us in this room to be born here. I thank you for my friends that are in this room who were born in China or Taiwan or Mexico or some other country. But in your providence, you have caused us all to be here now. Lord, Lord, put smelling salts under our nose. Give us a sort of spiritual ammonia underneath our nostrils so that we will wake up and we will... We will be people whose feet are planted firmly in this world, but whose eyes and heart is stretched towards heaven and is calling a lost world around us not to life here on this earth, but on the life that is to come. God, make us fierce, gracious, humble stewards of the freedom that we have so that we commend ultimate freedom in your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing death and trial and imprisonment by hostile governments. Lord, give them grace. Put steel in their spine. And do the same for us, I pray. Lord, may we render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But may we render to God what is God's, which is all authority, all allegiance, all affection, all devotion. And may we do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.